Good evening. It's good to see everybody here tonight. Um, before I get started, I just want to say thank you to the elders for giving me this opportunity, um, for trusting me enough to get up here and present God's Word to you. And also, Trail and Lester this morning, y'all presented some wonderful lessons. Lester, Bible class and Trail for the sermon this morning. Um, for anybody who may not have been here, you missed a treat. And we appreciate you guys stepping up and doing that. You did a wonderful job. I hope I can, hope I can do as well tonight. Um, if anybody doesn't know, this is the very first lesson I've ever presented in a worship setting. A um, little bit nervous, but that's okay. Uh, Eddie come and asked me to, to present the lesson tonight, and I must say my first answer was not yes. I, uh, I asked him to ask around and see if he could find anybody else, and uh, he came back to me and said, you're still the man. So, uh, so I'm, I'm up here for you tonight, um, and I will say I am a fairly blunt person. Um, you can ask Jenna. I'm not very good at sugarcoating stuff. I try to sometimes. I'm not good at it. Um, so if you do get your toes stepped on tonight, just keep in mind I've probably been jumping on my own all day and all week getting ready for this lesson. So um, hopefully we can present it in a way that everybody can understand it. For the topic tonight, I kind of wanted to look at a couple different, um, two or three different points that all kind of gear around the same theme. And that theme being there's some biblical truths that some people just will not accept. Some people out in the world, whether it be Christians, non-Christians, whoever it is, there are certain things in the Bible people just have a very, very hard time of accepting. Um, and I really want to look at some scriptures tonight to shed some light on, on this subject. I'm a very firm believer in letting the Bible speak for itself, letting the scriptures speak for themselves. So there's several scriptures I want to look up tonight. I want us to read them together. So if you would get your Bibles out um, so you can turn to those scriptures with me because I want you guys to be able to read this on your own and not just take my word for it. The first one to look at is something that in our society today, it's something that's very prevalent. It's something that puts a lot of pressure on Christians. Basically, political correctness. We can't tell anybody that they're wrong. We can't tell people that what they believe is wrong, that what I'm doing, my actions are wrong. But is that what the Bible says? Can I be wrong in what I'm doing? Can I inject my own opinion into what I'm doing when it comes to scriptural issues? Is it a situation to where God's going to look at me someday and you know, he said, and him say to us, you know what, you've been a good person, you've done some good things, you've tried your best, you're all right, go ahead, it's fine. Does it matter what I do in my life and is God going to hold me accountable for those things? First scripture I want to look at tonight is Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 36. It says, for you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. So for us to receive this promise of heaven, that's the promise it's talking about, for us to receive that promise, this says we have to do the will of God. There was no stipulations around that, no questions about that. We must do the will of God. So how do I know what the will of God is? How do I know that I'm doing God's will instead of basically injecting my own will into that? Everything that we need to know as far as the will of God is included right here. Everything and only the things that we need for the will of God is included right here in the Scriptures. Let's look real quick at 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 16, is a scripture that was read for us tonight. It says, All scripture is given by inspiration of God, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thoroughly equipped. That means everything I need is right here. I don't need anything else. I don't need what somebody else's opinion is. I don't need what my own opinion is. God gave us everything we need right here. And one of the things that's included in that is our conscience. Can you trust your own conscience at times to guide you instead of going back to God's Word? So let's look at that, Jeremiah chapter, Jeremiah chapter 10. Verse 23, it says, O Lord, I know the way of man is not in himself. 
It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. Basically, this says, I can't go on what my own conscience tells me at times. I can't direct my own steps. I have to go back to the Bible for everything that I do. We know in Acts that Paul said before he was converted on that road to Damascus, everything he did, he said he did it in good conscience towards God. He did everything in good, good conscience towards God. That included persecuting the church, persecuting Christians, sending them to jail, killing them if possible, doing everything he could to stop the name of Jesus from being preached. He did every bit of that in good conscience towards God. That means we cannot fall back on our own conscience today. We cannot fall back on our own opinion to do what we want to do. We have to go back to the Word of God. Look at Isaiah chapter 55. Isaiah chapter 55, in verse 8 it says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Pretty well sums it up. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter how much something makes sense to me. If it does not go by God's word, it's meaningless. If we go by our own opinions, if we go by our own thoughts, it's very possibly could be contrary to the will of God. Brother Stan Stevenson brought up a good point this last week when he was doing the gospel meeting. He talked about ethical lying, which in and of itself is an oxymoron. Ethical lying. Basically, that's telling a lie so that you don't hurt anybody else's feelings. Can we do that? In our mind, we can justify that all the time. Oh, it's nothing big. It's just a little bitty fib. It's not going to hurt anybody. It's not going to get blown out of proportion. Something as small as in somebody cooks a meal for you and then you ask if you like it. It was the greatest meal I ever had, right? You don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. Anything you can think of, can a small lie like that be done and it be okay and God just kind of brush it off just because you're trying to protect somebody else's feelings? Revelation 21 tells us, says liars are going to take apart in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. He didn't say all the liars except lies where you try to protect somebody. He said liars have a part in that lake that burns with fire and brimstone. There were no conditions around that that God placed. We've already mentioned Paul, but let's look at a few others. If you would, turn with me to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm going to look at a couple verses in this. Starting with verse 1, it says, Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. Some they, so they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. Stop right there. That was their first mistake. God gave very, very specific instructions how this ark was to be carried. It was not to be put on a cart. It was not to be pulled by oxen. There were poles to be put in the ark, and there was a very specific family within the tribe of Israel who was to do the carrying of the ark. No one else could carry it. David and his people broke the first rule there. Let's look at verse 4. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. Then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. What did Uzzah do wrong? What in the world did he do wrong? For all we know, this ark could have fallen off the cart and shattered. We have no idea. This is something that most people see in the Old Testament as being probably one of the most cherished um, heirlooms of the Old Testament could have possibly been destroyed at that point. 
and Uzzah saved it from being destroyed. For all we know, he put his life on the line underneath the weight of that ark, chancing it would fall on top of him and kill him, but he may have sacrificed his own life to keep that ark from breaking. Thinking of that in human terms and the way we see it today, is that surely not a situation that God would have looked at and said, hey, I'm going to let that go. He was doing what he should have done. He was trying to help out. He was doing what he thought was best. Surely to goodness God would have left slide, right? No. Uzzah normally would have been considered a hero in most other settings that we see today, not in God's eyes. Simply put, Uzzah did not do the will of God. God said very specifically before that in the Old Testament, nobody touches this ark. Nobody is to lay a hand on it. No questions asked. There were no stipulations put around it. It may not seem how it may not seem fair to us. It may not matter to us what we think about it. God said, you do not touch it. He said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You don't question what I tell you to do. Basically, looking at it, our opinion does not matter. Let's look at one more. Let's turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have, and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Very simple command, right? God said, you go and kill them. You don't leave anybody alive. I want to completely wipe out this group of people. You go and kill everybody there. No questions asked. All right, let's skip down to verse 8. Verse 8, it says, He, this is Saul, he also took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. That sounds reasonable, right? I mean, he pretty much did what God said. Everything that was bad there, he destroyed it. Did what God said, and he took the best of the stuff and brought it back to God, right? Sounds reasonable in most people's eyes. Look at verse 13. Then Samuel went to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. I can just imagine Saul in this situation, a big smile on his smile on his face, his chest, chest kind of puffed out, kind of proud of what he had did, that he had carried out the commandment of the Lord. Verse 14. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears, and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we've utterly destroyed. Saul did not take this stuff for his own selfish ambitions. He took the best of everything so that he could sacrifice to God. Surely God would let something like that slide. I mean, he was looking out for what God wanted. God likes sacrifices, right? Is that not what we're told in the Old Testament? He was bringing the best of the stuff so he could sacrifice to God. Thinking on that in human terms today is what most people see. No problem with that. Right? Let's look on. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet. And I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. So Samuel said, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Now the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you swoop down on the spoil and do evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, But I have obeyed, obeyed the voice of the Lord, and gone on the mission on which the Lord has sent me, and brought back Agag, king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. 
But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. There wasn't much stuff. He killed everything that was bad, utterly destroyed it, did exactly what God said, brought back stuff for sacrifice. No big deal, right? Let's finish it up in verse 22. So Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Something that in today's society we see as being no big deal. We might even see that as a good thing, that Saul was actually had God in mind. He was wanting to go sacrifice to him. Most people today, and even some Christians probably, would see that as, as a good thing. For that reason, King Saul lost his kingship. He lost what God wanted him. He lost the position God wanted him to be in, basically because he broke the will of God. All this goes back to Isaiah 55, where it, God says, My ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Our opinions do not matter when we get into this. So how does this apply to us today? How can we apply this to our lives and what we're seeing? Take worship, for, for instance. Does God give us guidelines on how we're supposed to worship? On the things we're supposed to do in our worship, does God tell us what we're supposed to do? How about in our community? Does God tell us how we're supposed to interact with people that we're around? Does He tell us how we're supposed to treat them, the things we're supposed to say to people? Does He give us guidelines on that? Absolutely. He tells us everything right here in the Bible that we need to know, and that goes back to show us the importance of studying your Bible. Do I know what God wants from me? I can't just inject my opinion into situations where I'm not 100% sure what God wants. I have to know what He wants from me. I have to read and study my Bible. But that brings up a good question. What if I'm just ignorant? What if I really did not know God didn't want me to do that? I was really doing the best I could, trying to please God, trying to follow His will, and I just did not know the situation. What if Uzzah had no idea he wasn't supposed to touch that ark? What if no one had ever told him, you can't touch that ark? I mean, that's a very possible situation. But the fact is, it did not matter. God said, you do not touch it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 17 says, This I say therefore and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the fertility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. These Gentiles were alienated to God. They were separated from God, and it says it was because of their ignorance. The ignorance didn't matter. God still commanded them to know what His will was and to follow it exactly. Not knowing doesn't matter. So simply put, when it comes to things in life, when it comes to what God wants us to do, our opinion has nothing to do with it. Our opinion could lead us just as wrong as purposely disobeying God. The second topic I kind of want to hit on tonight, and this is something that is kind of a touchy subject with some people. It's something that kind of makes people squirm in their seats when you really start talking about it. But it's something that I think a lot of Christians, especially in today's society, have a really hard time accepting. And that is when it comes to a Christian and our civil government, what is that relationship supposed to be like? How are we supposed to interact with our civil government? That's talking about your local, your state, your federal government. Does the Bible give us any guidelines on how we're supposed to interact with our government? What we're supposed to do? It does. It speaks very, very plainly about it. It gives very specific guidelines. The first thing we need to point out, the church is not a political entity. The church is not politically involved for one main reason. God gives us absolutely no authority to be involved in politics when it comes to the church. 
If Jesus had wanted the church to be politically involved, he had the best opportunity to do that when he was here on earth, creating the foundation for the church. But he very purposely avoided political situations and did not become involved in them. Let's take a look at 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. It says, These things I write to you, though I hope to come to you shortly. But if I am delayed, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. What's the pillar and ground? When it comes to a building, when it comes to a structure, what are the pillars for? What's the ground for? They are simply there for support. They are there for a structure to uphold it. Right? It says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. That means the church is upholding the truth. The church does not set the truth. The church does not create the truth. The truth's right here. The truth has already been given to us. Every bit of it's already been created. The church is here specifically to uphold it and to support it. Nothing else. When uh, the Bible talks to us about how we're supposed to interact with our government, and um, one of the things that Jesus told Pilate right before he was crucified, he told Pilate, he said, my kingdom is not of this earth. That's one thing we have to keep in mind. Jesus' kingdom is not here on earth. That means there are going to be things that go on in this world that are completely contrary to God's word. But it doesn't matter. God's kingdom is not here. All right. He had told him in John chapter 18, Jesus told Pilate, he said, if my kingdom was of this earth, my servants would be here fighting right now. You would not be able to crucify me if my kingdom was of this earth. There's no way you could do it. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. And this is a very main point I think we need to understand in this situation as far as how we as Christians are supposed to interact with our government. It's something very important. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17 says, Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. What does that mean to us today? Honor the king. We don't have a king. Replace that word with president. Honor your president. Honor your mayor. You honor your police officers. Any political authoritative figure that is above you, you are supposed to honor them according to the Bible. I think that sets the very foundation of what the Bible expects from us when it, become, when it comes to us dealing with our political authorities. Does this mean you have to agree with everything that they say? Do you have to agree with everything that they do? Absolutely not. We have a very perfect example in the Bible as far as how we're supposed to interact with our, with our authority figures. And you're looking at Saul and David back in 1 Samuel chapter 24. In 1 Samuel 24, we all know the story that David has become so mighty and so powerful in a military sense that he's starting to, get, to draw popularity away from Saul. Saul's becoming angry. Saul's becoming jealous to the point that David is fearing for his life. Saul's trying to kill him. David now has to gather as many men as he can and flee from Saul. He has to get as far away from him just to, simply to protect his own life. David and his men have now found themselves, themselves inside a cave. They're in, they're in a cave. They're in hiding from Saul. Ironically, Saul walks into that cave. No idea that, it, that David and his men are in there. David has the perfect opportunity. Saul is right there in his hands. He could end this entire thing right now. Walk up behind Saul and kill him. Saul would never know what was coming. But what did he do? He went and cut off a corner of his robe. Basically trying to make a statement to Saul. He says, Saul, I had the chance to kill you and I didn't do it. Leave me alone. Basically, that's what I see as the situation that David was trying to get to Saul. Should David have done that? Let's look at 1 Samuel 24, starting in verse 5. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he, was, because he had cut Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. David knew what he did was wrong. 
simply cutting the corner of his robe. Something that, if that happened today, okay, yeah, they shouldn't have got past Secret Service to the president or something. But they just cut the corner of his robe. It's not like they did anything to him, right? Most people wouldn't see this as a problem. David knew he shouldn't have done it. Let's read on in verse 7. We'll find out why. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. David also arose afterward, went out of the cave, and called out to Saul, saying, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David stooped with his face to the earth and bowed down. Why in the world did David bow to Saul? Saul was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. He was doing wicked things. He was trying to kill David. David was running for his life, and yet when Saul saw him, he turned around and bowed to him. Why in the world would David have bowed to Saul? There's one very simple answer. Saul was king. Saul was in a position that God ordained that says, you respect this position. You respect and you honor the position that he's in. It does not matter the circumstances or the situation. But a lot of people today will say, that's the Old Testament. We don't have prophets going around today anointing, anointing men to be presidents or women to be presidents. That's back in the Old Testament. We don't deal with that today. Let's turn to Romans chapter 13. Romans chapter 13, starting in verse 1, says, Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. This is New Testament law. This is the law that we are living under today. It says that, you're, that these positions, president's positions, mayor, any, any political authority you can think of, they're put in that position by God, whether we want to agree with it or not. We talked about earlier our opinion. Does it matter if I think that God put them in that position? No. The Bible says that it does. That's something, I, just that very specific verse, I think Christians have a hard, hard time accepting that today, simply because we see so much evil that's going on in the world around us. Even so many of our leaders are doing things that are wicked and evil in God's sight. We can't see how in the world God could have specifically put that, that person in that position. But it doesn't matter. God said that they did. Look on at verse 2. It says, Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Summarize it up. Simply put, if we break the law of the land, we are breaking God's law, period. There is no question about that. You must follow the law of the land. Otherwise, you are breaking God's will. And now this is a, uh, an area where, you, especially down here in the South, you can really start getting sensitive with people. In our country, we have what's known as the Bill of Rights. We have things in our laws that our government has said are our rights as citizens that cannot be taken away from us for any reason. One of those is free speech. We have the right to free speech according to our law. What if our government decides to change that? What if our government decides to limit our speech? We have the right to bear arms. We have the right to own and possess our guns. What if the government decides to change that? What if they decide to come and take those away from us? How are we supposed to react? In our minds, they're going against our Bill of Rights. They can't do that, right? Not according to Romans chapter 13. Simply put, we have to follow the law that is set forth in our land. It doesn't matter what that law is. It said if they want to change free speech, we adhere to that. If they say that we no longer have a right to bear arms, the government comes to get our guns from us, you hand them over. You don't have a choice in that. You hand them over freely and without any kind of an incident. But I can already see what some people are thinking. 
What if? What if the law of the land is contrary to God's law? Do we still have to follow it? Is this a contradiction in the Bible? Romans 13 says you have to follow it. Is that a contradiction? Let's look at that. Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5 and verse 27. It says, And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with, with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. There's your one exception. The only time we have the authority from God to not follow the laws of this land is when it is contrary specifically to God's law, period. Every other time, we must follow the law of the land. God's law comes first, and as long as the law of the land does not contradict that, you must follow it. Back to Romans 13. Back to Romans 13. Let's pick back up in verse 6. It says, For because of this you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all, all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Paying taxes. That's something I know nobody likes to do. Nobody likes handing their money over. Nobody likes to pay taxes. And, and we've all heard what Jesus said Render unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and you render unto God the things which are God's. Jesus was specifically talking about taxes at that point. You have to ask the question, though, what if the taxes that we're paying into our government are very specifically being used for things that are unscriptural, things that are contrary to God's word? The government tells us this is what they're going to do with our tax money, and that goes completely against what God said is supposed to be done. What about abortions? What if our tax money is being used to fund abortions? Can we withhold our tax money? What if, what if our tax money is being used to promote homosexuality in our school systems, wherever it may be? What if that's what the government says they're going to do with it? Do we have the right at that point to withhold tax money, to revolt against the government and say, you know what, we're not going to be under you anymore. We're not going to do what you tell us to do anymore because you're not following God's word. I don't believe it does. Think of who Romans 13 was written to. Who was the book of Romans written to? It was written to the Christians living in Rome at that time. When Jesus made the comment that says, you render under Caesar the things which are Caesar's, who was he under the authority of at that time as far as the political power goes? He was under the country of Rome. From what we understand, Rome was possibly one of the most corrupt and evil governments in the history of this world when it comes to doing what God said to do. When it comes to scriptural issues, Rome, from what we understand, was probably about as far as you could get from it. These are the people that built the Colosseum. I know Lester mentioned it this morning in his Bible class lesson. They were freely and willfully killing Christians for the fun and entertainment of it. They would put them inside the Colosseum and just watch animals and other people just tear them apart just for the entertainment of it. Do you think when Romans was written, do you think any of this tax money they're talking about went to build the Colosseum? Do you think when Jesus said, you render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, do you think any of that money he was talking about was going to fund his own crucifixion? Do you think that money was going to be used specifically to kill him? I guarantee he knew that. That didn't matter. He gave no stipulations or any conditions around that statement. He said, you render under Caesar that which is Caesar's, period. That tells us today we have no right to withhold taxes. We have no right to tell our government, we're not paying you this tax money because you're not doing with it what we think you ought to be doing with it. God says you give it to them. When we look at our leadership today, it's very simple. Our leaders are to be honored and respected, period. The same way that you would be, want to be honored and respected if you were in that position. We are to be in subjection to our government, the Bible teaches. 
whether it's a democracy, whether it's a socialistic government, whether it's a dictatorship, a monarch, it does not matter what it is. God says you are in subjection to your government, period. There's one very important point, though, that we must point out with that. If you look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy chapter 2, and I appreciated hearing that in, in Adam's prayer this morning, um, before our morning lesson. It says there, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayer, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. God says you pray for your leaders. These people need prayers. We need to pray that they're going to make the decisions that, that lead this country to do what God wants us to do. It gives us the freedom to do what God wants us to do. It gives us the freedom to, to assemble peaceably as a religious organization. Right? If they outlaw that, we can't abide by that law. We would have to break the law in order to do what God said if they, if they outlawed assemblies like this. Therefore, we must pray for our leaders to make sure they make the right decisions. So when you think about our relationship, as far as a Christian's relationship with the government, it's something that's, that's very touchy at times. It's something that a lot of Christians want pride and their opinions to draw in on that situation. But God gives us very specific guidelines as far as the way we're supposed to treat that and what we're supposed to do. The final topic I want to look at tonight, it, while I was doing some study and some research for the sermon, I ran across an ABC News poll on the Internet that said that of all the people who believe in heaven, so this is talking about people who probably uh, profess themselves to be Christians, people who believe in heaven, 85% of those people believe they're going to heaven. 85% of the people who believe in heaven believe they're going to heaven. Is that what the Bible teaches? Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. The Bible teaches something very contrary to what that poll showed. 85% of people believe in heaven, believe they're going to heaven. That's not what the Bible says. It's hard for a lot of people to accept. Hell is a very, very real place. And there are going to be a lot of people going there according to the Bible. People don't want to accept that today. If you look at, let's skip on down to Matthew 7, skip down to verse 21. It says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. God's not talking about atheists here. He's not talking about non-believers. He said, these are the people who say to me, Lord, Lord, did I not do all these works in your name? Was I not doing what you wanted me to do? He's talking here about this, 80, this group of 85% of people who think they're all going to heaven. That's the portion of the group he's talking about. These are the people that are going to stand before him someday surprised when he says, depart from me, I never knew you. What's, what's most people's reaction to that when you tell them there is a hell and people are going to go there? Most people in the world today say, God loves us. He doesn't want anything bad for us. He doesn't want us to go to hell. He wants us to be in heaven with Him. God would never do anything like that. But they fail to mention God's a just God. God is a very jealous God. It teaches that many, many places in the Bible. And something that's always confused me is when people read the Old Testament, they see that in God. They see that He's someone that is not tolerant to disobedience, that He's a very firm God, and He, he demands things get done the way He says to do them. But for some reason, when people read the New Testament... That's not the God they see. They seem for some reason to think God has changed. 
Let's look at Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. Look at verse 6. It says, Because of these things, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. God's wrath will be coming. The same as it came in the Old Testament, it came in real time. So it doesn't come in real time like it used to. But it doesn't matter. God's wrath will be coming. And it says it will be coming against the sons of disobedience. So that makes me have to ask the question, how do I be obedient to God? How do I be the person that God tells me I need to be so that I will not end up in hell someday, so that I can live with Him in heaven? The first thing we have to do, very simply, you must believe. You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and you must believe that He died for your sins. John chapter 8 and verse 24 says, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Next, you've got to recognize that you're a sinner. You have to recognize you're a sinner and you have to repent of those sins. In Luke chapter 13, Luke chapter 13 and verse 2, it says, And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? Skip down to verse 4. Are these 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the men who dwelt in Jerusalem. Basically, people were asking Jesus, what about all these people who suffered here on earth? They suffered some very bad things while they were here on earth. Physically suffered. Surely to goodness, these people are worse sinners than what we are because I haven't suffered. I live a fairly good life. I haven't really had anything bad done to me. Therefore, they've got to be a worse sinner than me. Look in verse verse 5. It says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus confirms... You do not have to have bad things happen to you on earth. You do not have to suffer, suffer physically when you're here on earth in order to be a sinner. It says in the Bible that all men have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, you have to recognize that you are a sinner and you have to repent of those sins. Next, you have to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10 and verse 10, it says, For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. The Bible gives us a very, very good example of how this is done. If you look back in Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, when we're looking at the Ethiopian eunuch, starting in verse 36, it says, Now as they went down the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. We must do that if we want to be obedient to God. Next point, you must be baptized. Many people in the world want to stop before this. They want to say that baptism isn't necessary. That baptism is a work and you're not saved by works. Baptism is not a work that we're trying to do to earn our salvation. Let's turn to 1 Peter real quick. 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll start in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is, eight souls were saved through water. Eight souls. That's Noah and his wife, his three sons and their wives. Eight souls were saved by water. There is, an, there is also an antitype which now saves us. Let's stop there for a second. What's an antitype? What is an antitype? Trail's entire sermon this morning was basically geared around that concept. Though he never brought up the word antitype, Jonah was an antitype to Jesus. Him spending three days in the belly of that fish was an antitype to Jesus spending three days in the tomb. 
Look at dictionary.com. It's a secular website, basically the same as Webster's Dictionary. An online dictionary, dictionary.com, it says, it quotes, an antitype is something that is foreshadowed by a type or symbol as a New Testament event prefigured in the Old Testament. Trail's entire sermon this morning was geared around this concept of an antitype. Let's look back at, at 1 Peter 3 again. Let's start back in verse 20. It says, who, who formerly were disobedient when once the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. There is also an antitype which now saves us, baptism. Not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Just as the water back in Genesis saved Noah and his family, baptism saves us today. That's what the Bible says. And there's nothing special about the water. It doesn't matter if it's here in this baptistry. It doesn't matter if it's in a rain barrel outside. There's absolutely nothing miraculous about the water. It is the simple fact that we are being obedient to God. We are doing what he told us to do. There's one final thing you must do in order to gain heaven someday. And that you've got to continue to live your life faithfully. In 1 Corinthians chapter 18, or excuse, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. Have you done all this stuff? Have you done the things that God says you must do in order to be with Him in heaven someday? According to the Bible, most people in the world aren't going to do these. But most people in the world aren't going to make it to heaven. And I'm going to be very blunt about this. If you have not done these things, you will be standing on God's left hand someday when He says, Depart from me, I never knew you. If you have not done what God says that you have to do to be obedient, you will not make it into heaven someday. Will there be a tomorrow? Are you waiting for another day? If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, why are you waiting? The Bible says that Jesus is going to come as a thief in the night. That may be tomorrow. That may be next year. It may be a thousand years from now. But it also may be before we walk out of these doors tonight. This may be the last chance you ever have in your life to be obedient to God. To do what God told you to do in order to make it to heaven. Maybe you have done all this. But that last step is kind of tripping you up. Living your life faithfully. You may be doing things in your life you're not proud of. Things that you know you need forgiveness for. If that's your situation, let us pray for you. Come and confess those sins before the congregation. We'll be more than happy to pray for you. We want to pray for you. We want to pray that your sins are forgiven. We want to see you go to heaven. If either of these situations tonight is a situation that you're in and you need the prayers of this congregation, we ask that you come forward as we stand the same.